Welcome back, XPod listeners. My name is Brandon Shu. I'm the host of XPod. I want to introduce you to today's guest. We had Richard Everall. Richard is with Beasley. He's their U.S. programs focus group leader there. Richard has quite a vast portfolio of lines of business that his group writes, but Richard and I do a lot of work together in a couple niche areas, which would be products, liability, and some sharing economy risk. And it was great to have Richard on the show. He told us all about his exciting background in biology and stem cell development and judo. So uh, excited for you to join in and hear Richard's thoughts on the uh, ever-changing insurance marketplace. All right, everybody, welcome back to Axapod. My name is Brandon Shu, the host of Axapod. And today we have a special guest, Richard Everall. Richard, thank you for joining Axapod. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, Richard and I have known each other for a little bit here, and we decided we wanted to jump on and dig a little deeper into our personalities and personal backgrounds. Richard, I, I was docking your LinkedIn profile, and the first thing that jumped out at me was you have an interest in judo. Elaborate. <laughs> and the other thing that probably jumped out is it probably needs a refresher in there as well. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I went off to college and thought, let's try something that I haven't done before and flinging people over your shoulder and then having a beer afterwards seemed like a good idea. So, and also at the time I was dating the British judo champion. So she sort of, oh, got wow. Me into it. That's, so, yeah. that's, 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 you buried, you buried the lead there. That, that's, yeah. So, I don't know if that was more carrot or stick. <laughs> <laughs> I took a judo class in college as well. Now, how far did you go with it? I got up to brown and then stopped there because if you went any further up to black, you, you got, sorry, I went up to blue. If you went up to brown or black, you um, got stuck on your on the categories you could fight at. So if you stay oh, yeah. blue, you can fight in the, in the lower categories and then pick up a few more bits of silverware that maybe, maybe you wouldn't otherwise okay. got. got so it. kind of tactical decision. But I'm afraid those, those days are a little bit behind me. Probably not a lot of COVID sparring yeah. <laughs> uh, happening yes. either. So yeah, yeah, not great for the old uh, social distancing. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of social distancing, how has the last fifteen or sixteen months gone for you? You know what you do for a living. So it's been interesting. I mean, we are a team of, of six people working out of a London office, traditional Lloyd's Market stuff. So we were spending a lot of time sitting down face-to-face trading at the boxes in the Lloyd's building. So from a from a geographical and sort of physical trading point of view, everything changed. And then from a business point of view, aside from parts of our business that were impacted by COVID, you know, I feel desperately sorry for all of those people who, uh, a lot of our insureds who, who had to close down their operations and some might not be coming back to work, haven't been able to get back on their feet yet. So that's the really hard part to see. From our point of view and our business point of view, actually, aside from the entertainment space, very little was really affected. A little bit of a lull in some areas, some areas. That, and yeah, we've just sort of not missed a stride and we went from one week being in the office to one week being without and it didn't really make too much difference to us really although i do think we're all quite ready to get back in get back together have a drink together and sort of (laughs) touch base properly because it does feel a bit weird now yes now what is the i was actually just talking to one of my london brokers about this but what is the the opening calendar look like here for the uk 
We are already parked back in our offices and it's really attendance to need. So we're going back in certainly as, as Beasley. Uh, the doors are open if you'd like to get back in and have a good reason to be there. So I'm going back into the city about once a week and just sort of catching up with brokers a little bit one by one. And then we just had a lockdown delay up until the 19th of July, at which point the UK will be hopefully, assuming nothing changes before then, which I'm sure it will, uh, <laughs> open, back to a slightly more open door policy, we'll be able to invite brokers into the office, we'll be able to really resume training as, as usual. But really, I mean, the, the big threshold would be when we can get back on the plane and get over to the States and start sort of reconnecting with you know, people like yourself who I would right. love to come and see in person. It feels like it's yeah. been quite a while. Yeah, I was, I was looking at your quarantine schedule and it looks like you're for U.S. citizens, at least, it looks like we still have to quarantine for about ten days if we come over there. So, yeah, yeah you're, you're on a might, might be a while that. before I jump on a plane if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. We'll just have to carry on doing these instead. We'll right, right, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Lots of podcasts. Speaking of insurance and and uh, Beasley and the space and everything, I noticed you had you went for your master's degree and it was in biology. So I'm curious how biology led to underwriting at Beasley. Missing out on the pharmaceutical industry probably is the best way to put it. So I, I did undergraduate biology, I did a master's in genetics. I thought I wanted to do something that sort of married up pharmaceuticals and business and ended up on various sort of graduate assessment centers for some of the big pharma guys like AstraZeneca and um, GlaxoSmithKline. So I was at the uh, assessment center with GSK and... Didn't get it, but the guy there saw that I'd actually done a year uh, working in insurance sort of in between, in between leaving school and going to university. And he said, look, I saw that you had this on your CV. I took the liberty of just emailing my insurance guy, who's a, a London market guy, just saying, you know, do you have a position? I'd like to, you know, it seemed to, seemed to be something he could do, you know, after a couple of days of sitting there at their assessment centers, which were not easy to get through. And I got this call from a guy who said, I would love to meet you because you're basically me, but 10 years younger, because on paper, <laughs> you've basically done all the same things. Very weird call to get. But I went up yeah. and met him, and that was sort of my first, first foothold in. I ended up doing a graduate scheme at uh, Chaucer. Five years ago, I left Chaucer and came across to Beasley. I've been here ever since. So no one ever has a straightforward route into insurance. You always right. fall here no. one way or another. No. <laughs> No, there's there's not a lot of rightly or wrongly. I think probably wrongly. There's not a lot of college students that think they're going to go into insurance. I think we all probably fall into it a little bit backwards. I did kind of the inverse route of most people. I think I was an intern at a at a ladder manufacturer in, in college, and I was actually a sales and marketing intern at the time. And that turned to me wanting to go to law school and having a conversation with our CFO about that and how that might look if I stayed with the company and that sort of thing. And then we had just started selling ladders to Home Depot at that time. It was like 2004. And all of the sudden, 2004, we went from a you know $50 million company to like a $200 million company. And then these claims started coming in. Uh, uh, faster and faster, and I think the CFO recognized at that point that it was probably a little bit more than than he could handle. So he he said, "I know you're, you're thinking about going to law school, but what do you think about this?" And I said, "Why don't we give it a shot?" And I I stayed there for about ten years, and that kind of developed into a more of an insurance you know relationship position where I'm you know, it was less about product liability investigations and more about insurance procurement. So. I kind of learned kind of on the go from really good, smart people and saw that I wanted to be in the insurance business and the, the rest 
kind of history. So, but I joined the brokerage side at Hayes after about 10 years at Gorilla Ladders and about three years ago now I, I moved over to Christensen Group. So yeah, it's been an exciting journey. But uh, yeah, I had no no idea that I would end up in the insurance business, but I'm very glad that I did. I think it's the best business out there now. That's, that's probably the best route in as well. No, it, was, it, it definitely provided me a lot of a lot of insight into my customer base for sure. Literally, my first years selling insurance, I would go up and down the aisles of a Home Depot store because that's what I knew the kind of the uh, consumer product, household good product space, and I would just look on the boxes of you know ladders and pressure washers and air compressors and see who manufactured it, go on LinkedIn, check out to see who is their CFO or CEO and reach out to them. And that's how I started my business here. And it worked out pretty well. Unfortunately, I don't have any clients really in Minnesota. They're all over the country and the world. So I end up traveling a lot. So COVID was a very big disruption for me in that regard, but it's worked out. So ready to get back on the road as soon as you can. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, I'm, and we're starting to. So it's it's fun to be back on an airplane again. But I was, I, you know, like everybody else, I didn't do any air travel for over a year. I haven't met, you know, like 50% of my clients in person, which is really strange. I'm sure you'll be able to make up for it. And uh, yeah. I hope they uh, I hope they keep your air miles rolling over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they Yeah, they seem seemingly have. Well, let's talk about the market then. I mean, you. so you've yeah. been, how long were you at Chaucer? About eight years, seven or eight years. And then five Beasley so far. 12, 13 years in in insurance. What have you seen change over that period of time? Well, a a lot of things. So my background actually originally when I first started was in property. I was an international property binders underwriter. So we were doing mostly Australian, New Zealand, Caribbean business, which means the trips were fantastic. Slightly hairy when you get through wind season. And then I, I came across to the US market on the liability side seven or eight years ago. It's a shorter time frame to some of, some of the people that have around me in the market. And you know, some people are, are looking at decades worth of experience. But certainly in my time, it's changed. I think the thing that is most pronounced is, is the change in the way that business is flowing into the London market and the way that we access business. I think the relevance of Lloyd's has changed. And you know we always need to keep up to date and keep pace with the US market as it becomes more automated, as we look to go online and be more systems-based, but then still keep that personal time touch and the relationship. It's very tempting to, to turn your back on, on that personal side of things. And I think uh, looking around me, a lot of people have and have done quite well in the process. But at the same time, I think when it comes to the, the more claim sensitive maybe areas of the market, the higher hazard categories and the areas that need slightly more risk management is probably the areas we pay the most. I think having that, that relationship up and down the chain is so important, something not to be overlooked. So yeah, I think it, I think we're finding a, a new balance with the digital world, a new balance within our company as well, and then also making the right decision about you know what business is suitable for what, which which line, you know where where we need to become more efficient to to produce the most value for our customers, and where we need to become better at uh, providing additional services to other types of customers. Obviously, one of the biggest issues out there in the casualty market space of late has been growing development trends, you know, call it social inflation, call it what you want, but we're seeing more claims add up to more dollars. Is there any sort of uh, consensus on the underwriting side of what might be causing some of these trends in social inflation and growing expenses and verdicts and settlements? 
So that's a really good question. And consensus, probably not. I think a lot of us are, are trying to, to understand where a lot of the trends are coming from. I do think there is a behavioral change that's going on. We see a change in the claims notified to us. And a lot of the time we will get a, a high demand straight off the bat and probably a slightly more aggressive stance coming into the claims handling process. And that's something we've just had to adapt to a little bit. It's difficult to tell. It's actually, this, this trend has happened so quickly. It really, over the last 10 years, Yes, but probably more focused over the last few. So it's difficult to tell whether that's really resulting in, in a material change in the dollar settlement on our side, you know, in the little niches that I serve. But I suspect it probably is. And it's probably a change in culture. And it's definitely an ch- uh, escalation in, in the costs of uh, medical care. I suspect that several areas of the chain on the plaintiff's side are responsible for that as well, you know, changing cost structures and probably slightly more understanding of where to pitch the demands and where to pitch the expectations of of their clients. A combination of all those things coming together is probably driving it. And, you know, everywhere you look, every facet of the market, every class has got its own reason. But funny enough, it does all come together to a common theme, which is that the demands are just getting higher and, and the settlements do seem to be escalating as well quite quickly. It's interesting working for Gorilla Letters. I used to sit through a lot of trials and you do the voir dire process with the jury and, you know, ask them questions about things that they might have inherent biases to or or what have you. And, you know, they were always fairly static, you know, across the board back in those, you know, this was 10 plus years ago. But foreign manufacturer was becoming an issue for us at the time we imported our product from China. So even then, we started doing some voir dire at the time that was focused on, you know, inherent biases toward foreign manufacturing and that sort of thing. But I just, I feel like I'm seeing it more, more frequently now. And I don't know if it's some sort of corporate disdain, anger toward corporations or anger towards corporations and moving jobs away from the U.S. and how this might interplay with the polarization in American politics. I don't know, but I, I feel like there's something there because I, I definitely don't don't see a black and white reason why we've kind of gone down the route that we have. But that's kind of my just interpretation of it. Polarization Being, is an interesting yeah. point because when we're looking at, you know, you're always looking at the end point where this might go when we're generally looking looking to settle and the guessing game of knowing how your jury might react if you get to a trial situation is becoming harder. And some of the polarization is is probably leading into that as well. And if there's a fear factor about taking to trial and the unknown settlement, of course, that's going to change the way you approach the settlement in the first place. So yeah, uh, yeah, I I think you're right. The polarization issue is there. Does territorial trends have any influence on, you know, what sort of lines of business you guys are focusing on? And in your group, you know, what are you focusing on? So my group is a predominantly a delegated authority team, and we focus across a handful of product areas from cyber professional niche parts of, of the general liability market, including products. So we've got a relatively broad broad range. Because we are programs focused, we're looking generally to mine very niche specific areas of coverage where we can bring something original, uh, whether that's IP, interesting structure, a focus that's not out there at the moment, maybe corners of business that have been overlooked by the market and under, are underserved for those reasons. And that's really where we lend the most value to the market. I don't see the same trends that the whole market shares because we live in our different niches a lot of the time. Geographically, 
I mean, the, the established state rules tend to hold true for the most part. Obviously, you know, the, ch- the changing landscape in lots of states happens at, at a different rate. And, you know, certain states like say, California or Illinois, the landscape can shift quite quickly. So I guess we, we adapt to that. But there's, there are very few areas geographically where we say absolutely no. But then we're also not really playing in the classes like the more, the larger and uh, the more exposed areas of the MISC-MED market or uh, the true medical market, hospitals market, which might take a slightly more nuanced view to jurisdiction. And then in the products world also, a lot of the time the product defines the jurisdiction we're in. You know, if you're doing you know, hunting goods, you're going to be in rural jurisdictions and that's where the product is sold. And, that's, and the claim could come from any jurisdiction as well. So you've got to be prepared to, to deal with every state on its own merits. We don't differentiate hugely between states because we can't, we can't pick a, a state in which we know the claim is going to occur and we can't guarantee that we're going to handle the claim in any one state. So this was slightly more nuanced. Yeah, absolutely. If you look out on your classes of business that, that you're writing here and you look at the market and, and where, where it is today, what do you see as your hurdles as you're moving forward here? So getting back slightly more to into the product space, there is a very fast product market normally for foreign manufacturing. A lot of it seems to be trend-based. It'd be interesting to see which of those trends last over time and which are, are maybe more fad or short-term. But it certainly seems like there are certain trends, micro-mobility, for example, which is a trend that's really sticking. Um, I can't right. see that going away. The infrastructure's coming in. The investments are there. Um, it fits into so many different lifestyles. The need is there. So, so that's an interesting emerging trend. We don't really know where that's going to go. We don't know what the future of that trend is. We don't know what the product's going to look like in five years' time. We don't know what the customer's needs are going to be in five years' time exactly. We probably take a decent educated guess and try and approach that. I think it's understanding the emerging trend, understanding our customers' needs, and trying to have a view, a longer-term view in product classes to say, you know, these ones are probably going to be around for a little bit longer and we need to be a little bit more decisive, um, thoughtful about our approach. Because you know, then we can actually produce something that has proper value, um, and it's going to be there for a long enough time to actually, you know, influence the market a bit. Where do you see data? You know, data gathering, you know, electronic data playing a role in you know, kind of the future of underwriting. And we'll use micromobility as an example. You know, obviously, it's a relatively new industry. However, the ability to collect data on exposure is probably better than any other products, you know, strict product category that's out there for what you and I've done together. If you, I mean, if you look at the difference between, you you know, we talked about hunting products and micromobility. Well, obviously there's a, there's a lot more that a, you know, a scooter operator can process in terms of data than a, than a tree stand manufacturer can, because they don't know what is happening while it's being used. But a micromobility operator can potentially get that information. So how do you see data playing more and more into your consideration and your data processing? It's an interesting question. And it feels just, just on the on a sort of high level about data. It feels like, you know, several years ago everybody's just talking about data in this kind of slightly ethereal context. And now everybody's sort of sitting there saying, well, I, I have some data and I can access quite a lot of it. What do I do with it? Some people are getting better at using it. And then the next question is well, now I'm trying to make some inferences in it. Are my inferences correct and how can I test them? And I think, you know, we're just starting to get to the foothills of that really on micromobility where some of the larger operators, some of the larger supply chains have 
volumes of data that we can start to look at and some are willing to share. So I, I think it's absolutely pivotal. I think it's going to you know, play a huge role in, in how the industry evolves. But I think the key is how we interpret what's going on within that data and try not to make classic knee-jerk assumptions based on relatively small amounts of information or misinterpreting a trend which can be done so easily. Yeah, it's, it, it's fun having a lot to play with, but you've got to be right. intelligent about how you play with it. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the next challenge. We've all got to become a little bit more educated on, on how we analyze and work with data, definitely. It is definitely interesting when you're talking about predictions and whether or not that much data can actually assist in making predictions, especially in the casualty space, because at the end of the day, bodily injuries are one of the most unpredictable events that can happen in the insurance space because there's just so many factors that go into it. You know, you know, somebody there's a huge difference between if somebody sprains their ankle and if somebody has a brain injury, right? And so it's predicting that from a human factor standpoint and predicting that just from a cost development standpoint is nearly impossible. So at the end of the day, you know, is the claims data still going to be the most relevant kind of data to predict the future? Or is the, you know, the instrument data on the product going to help do that? I don't know, but it's, and, and maybe it's a, a good conversation. Yeah. 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 And, and, and then the other side of it is, you know, are we starting to access data that's becoming a leveler? I mean, yes, our claims data tradition as carriers is, is proprietary information. But if you have operators who are actually assimilating vast amounts of information, which are really greater than anything that we can produce in-house because they are operating their entire companies online in a, in a, a data-friendly environment, and then they're willing to distribute that. So that means that all of the carriers have access to the same information and can look at that and make the same inferences from it if they wish. So arguably, that's a leveler. And if it's a leveler, that is probably a good thing for the industry in that it creates a more consistent approach with carriers. You right. you can be slightly more, we become slightly more predictable, really. The trends hopefully flatten a little bit. So I think that's all very good for the customer. But again, as long as the our industry, our, the insurance industry is making the correct inferences about that data to start with. Because if the whole industry makes the wrong inferences, then you end up penalizing the customer all the way through. It's going to be an interesting next phase of the market, definitely when we're, when we're armed a little bit more as we see it. Data. Yeah. So speaking of data and the market, or specifically Lloyd's, I see now that there are some markets out there that are being erected that are using just data or just AI to underwrite. Do you think there is a future that you can foresee more of that happening? To me, insurance specifically is such a major purchase for a lot of organizations. And I think Lloyd's is always viewed it that way. It's a very belly-to-belly business, right? It's something that I think yields these relationships. And there's a lot that you can garner from sitting across the table and understanding what a company's culture is and how they rank importances in their organization and that sort of thing that you probably can't get from the data. And I've always kind of viewed the relationship as an essential part. Obviously, I'm in sales, so I'm a little biased. But how do you see that kind of delineation playing out in the future of underwriting in the Lloyd's marketplace? Firstly, I completely agree with you that relationship-driven business is absolutely key to parts of the market. I don't think the market is well-served if it doesn't have that level of relationship. But that's not really appropriate for all markets. And there's right. lots of commod- well-commoditized markets. As, you know, U- UK side has been on the your home insurance to consumer market, so they have your home insurance, car insurance, and so forth. We've been buying that online for years and years and years. So that right. relationship went, you know, decades ago, really. 
And quite rightly, that bar will start moving up into other areas of business, which become automatable. And it's quite right that that should happen. And that will sharpen rates, that will reduce inefficiencies in the chain. In the end, the person buying the coverage will be paying less for the coverage, should be in in an ideal world. And I think that's true. When they're buying through more automated platforms, that's great. And I'm not trying to service that part of the market. As a company, we have an approach to part of it and would like to be involved in part of it and are choosing where we would like to be. I myself as an underwriter am not involved in that part of the market and not interested in being either. So I will continue to work in spaces which are relationship driven and I believe there will always be that need to an extent. So it means that we need to understand always what our value is and why we're here and why we continue to do that is the value, you know, the peace of mind, which really underpins all of it in the end. Is it the input of some experience or IP? Is it originality and approach? Does a particular customer need something that an online platform cannot give them? Bespoke terms, something slightly unusual in the contract, which, you know, is just going to get kicked out of most systems. And then the systems are generally not supported by armies of underwriters because they're intentionally set up as lean machines. So we service that other part of the market that needs something slightly more specific for whichever reason that is. I think that's always going to be relevant in one way or another. That's really why Lloyd's was founded in the first place, maybe not going back all the way, but certainly in more recent history, that's the value that Lloyd's brought to the market, not just a capacity provider, but as a provider for IP provider for the unusual. And I think that's still relevant and we need to you know, maintain that position because that is, that's, I, I believe, the key to, to where we add value. Sitting here from the broker spot, obviously there's a lot of changes that have happened over the last couple of years with regard to capacity and appetite of different markets. You know, it, it was, you know, coming from my Early days in the marketplace, it was a very soft market. I had never really uh, witnessed a hard market like we're in today. In terms of the market itself and its kind of its change over the last couple of years, where do you view the the most strain happening right now in the marketplace? The most challenges for insureds as as they're trying to procure coverage. I'm going to step back a little bit from the niches I work in and maybe look at a slightly wider, wider market and, and other classes. And by the way, you know, we've, we've sat in kind of a soft market cycle as we saw it for years and years and years. And I think most underwriters will, will freely admit that they were looking forward to having a harder market. I also think that most underwriters will freely admit now that actually the harder market's not that fun to be in. The yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, you know, for a lot of us going through the cycle is, is testing. It tests your relationships. And, you, you know, we need to be very careful and um, conscious about how we look after our insurers and, you know, the people who depend on us on the way through that. Probably the naivety of thinking, oh, hard market gives underwriters the power of happy days. It's not quite right. the reality right. of it. <laughs> so, so sort of stepping back, obviously, strained areas of the market, so the cyber's become such an interesting tool. That market's going through a real evolution. And I think from the insured's point of view, it's it's very difficult at any level, even if you're a big multinational or certainly down to the mom and pop shops. If you see your premiums changing by huge amounts of, you know, as much as doubling in some cases um, year on year or in the renewal cycle when you didn't expect them to. I can see that putting insurers in a very difficult position. Fortunately, to an extent, it is unavoidable. If the market has to change and have a correction, it will have a change, it will have its correction. But then there's also we're heading through that. And I think that's where the element of strain comes in. And that's really what's going to those who are going to be here and able to hold their heads high at the end of it and those who won't. 
So that's an interesting one to watch. I have involvement in cyber to an extent. So yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting little process on that. So. As I'm looking out, I, I see probably the greatest disruption in excess capacity and uh, particularly in lines of business that I'm more focused on my niche areas, whether it's consumer product liability or micromobility, sharing economy is very challenging to find you know, a lot of excess support there. This might be outside of you know what, what you're doing on a day in and day out basis, but you, I'm sure you certainly feel it. What is your thoughts on where the excess you know, marketplace is trending now? It seems like a, a difficult place at the moment. You know, we set ourselves out really as a, as a primary market. And yeah. it's interesting and very frustrating, a lot of time, if I'm honest, when you put together what is going to be an effective deal. And then for lack of excess capacity, it doesn't convert. That's happening more often, you know, probably going back a couple of years. I, I, I can't remember that ever happening. But it seems to be more frequent. And, you know, the excess market is seemingly more challenged at the moment. It's difficult to explain why when there there are you know slightly more there is a slightly more active primary market and that doesn't seem to be as challenging. But the excess, and we're not talking about you know miles up in the gods on the layers, we're talking about first excess and second excesses that seem to right. be struggling. And then of course, you know, protecting our deals to an extent, we would love to be able to extend our our ability and and write a larger chunk. But most of the time we will the maximum line we possibly can on the risk that we really like. And those are the right. ones which, you know, are really frustrating to see go for lack of excess capacity. It's an interesting trend. It, it is, if I'm honest, a slightly frustrating trend. And I hope it settles itself soon. But at the same time, it maybe creates opportunities for us to have a look at tempting ourselves out of our traditional um, primary focus and maybe having a look at uh, supporting the excess market a little bit. Yeah, for me, the most success that I'm having right now is you know, in cases where I need more excess capacity is, is with markets that are able to do a supported excess lead layer of some kind, just because you know, I don't know how you view it from your perspective, but I assume it's you're already taking risk on the primary. So you know, a, a lead layer might be a lot more competitive if you're able to do both because you're already you know profitable on that primary layer. But certainly, if you do that, Richard, I'll be I'll be pretty happy about that. I'm not sure I can turn around and double down on everything I'm doing tomorrow. But uh... <laughs> right, 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 right. Any other thoughts here as we uh, near the end of the conversation about the future of the market and where you think this all might be going, and if if you think we might be taking. Uh, a continued trend to harden, or you think this might be maybe after the kind of the winds of 2020 and 21 after COVID, you know, is the, do you think the market might, you know, regress maybe a little bit to softening? You know, I'm, I'm not even going to have a stab uh, what the market might <laughs> be doing, because if I said the same thing last year, if, if you asked me the same question last year and the year before, there's a very good chance I would have been wrong. If I don't think I would have yeah. been, because, you know, COVID's changed everything and we don't know exactly what the recovery is going to be like. I have been wrong about the markets. You saw a, you know, an enormous market fluctuation in March last year as we, as the world goes into lockdown. And yet you're seeing an incredibly buoyant market both sides of the Atlantic now. If you were looking at those things in isolation, you know, certainly COVID and global pandemic and then the buoyant market, the two don't fit together particularly well. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't put those two together. And yet here we are. So with the insurance market, I think you can probably predict a few of the trends in certain classes with some accuracy and some confidence. 
but making making judgments about the whole market because of the context of uh, global economies, global trade, US politics, uh, and everything else that goes into that mix. I'm not even going to have a, a pretend that yeah. <laughs> I know what's going to happen there. What I do know is that the part of the market that we work in, which gets into emerging risk, gets into new products, and gets into kind of you know what we like to consider the cutting edge of things, it's a lot of fun to be there. It's it's somewhere that you know I think if we we can actually add some some real value because you're offering something that's not available that's on on risk where a lot of the, the larger and more traditional domestic carriers aren't able to be as flexible as agile are interested in getting involved in early and that's not a trend that's going to change I think we can say that with some confidence so I look forward to seeing what happens in micro mobility as that evolves and I look forward to seeing what the hell the next micromobility is going to be because it will be something and um, I'm yep. sure it'll be something coming soon and um, I hope it's something that we can we can help out with I think I think we'll do our best to get it to you and because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm I feel the same way so yeah got to stay fresh got to stay on the cutting edge and make sure that we're, we're keeping up to date with all the, the local trends so yeah, it's, um, it's the exciting place to be we wouldn't change it right yeah exactly well, Richard, I appreciate you being here. I look forward to getting a pint with you at the pub here when London opens up. And thanks again for making some time for us here on Hacks and Pod. We've got the wall mail on tap for you whenever you're ready, Brandon. Great to see Perfect. you. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Okay.